Welcome to Teacher Formation. I'm Erin Wibbins. And I'm Monica Kowalski. We are teacher educators who believe in using current research to inform pedagogy. And each episode, we choose a recent educational research article to unpack and apply to teaching. And today we're going to talk about an article called No One Gets to Own the Term The Science of Reading. And this is a piece by a well-known literacy expert and author, Lucy Calkins, who I'm sure many of you um, use some of her work in your classrooms. Uh, this piece was published by Columbia University's Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, which was designed and founded by Lucy Calkins herself. So my understanding is that this piece is somewhat of a response to the reading wars, um, like this conflict between different approaches to early literacy instruction that I feel like has been in the news a lot lately. Erin, uh, can you give some background on that? For sure. So I think a lot of our, um, especially our ACE teachers and maybe people out there kind of know and understand um, that the teaching of reading has long been a point of contention. And even us as learners ourselves can probably um, think back to our own early literacy years and maybe name some of the things that we learned or how we learned them. So the term reading wars has to do with um, where teachers and researchers and authors of curriculum even believe that the focus of reading instruction should be. So it's a very much of like a pendulum swing, um, that kind of a phenomenon. So um, at times in our history, some believe that the teaching of reading should focus on phonics instruction. So when our parents, maybe in the 60s or 50s, were learning to read, um, it was very much phonics focused. So decoding and sounding words out. Um, and some believe the teaching of reading should be more about students being immersed in um, high quality literature and whole language, uh, always inundated with texts and authentic reasons for reading. Um, and then it goes even beyond that. So it's not just about phonics or, or whole language. It can also be about comprehension. So some believe that students should learn to comprehend through direct instruction of strategies, like how good readers might make sense of your chemistry textbook, for example. And others believe that the literature, the article maybe on chemistry itself, should drive instruction and strategy use and understanding. So I don't, I just wanted to make it clear that there are misconceptions um, or that there's a, a wide um, variety of opinions, both in phonics and also in comprehension. So it's not just the phonics debate here. Um, so this, this concept of reading wars is the idea that some believe strongly one way and others believe strongly other ways. Um, and what I really want to highlight is often for teachers, it's the materials we have in our classroom, it's the availability of those materials or the curriculum we have that often drives our own instruction, instructional decision making for better or worse. So that's also something to think about. Sure, yeah, that's really helpful. And yeah, that, that is what I was thinking of with, with the Reading Wars too. I've been familiar with that distinction between say whole language and phonic. So it all works together and, and it, certainly there's a lot there. Uh, so. Based on that, I guess one question I have for you, Erin, is as you teach the literacy methods courses for elementary teachers, how do you approach this? Where do you start and what's your um, preferred way of teaching literacy? 
Yeah, that's, thanks for asking. That's a, that's a good question. Um, and I have to say that I really liked this piece. So it was written by Lucy Calkins, who um, does the Reading and Writing Project. And her, her work is really well known. So a lot of our teachers do a read, reader's workshop or writing workshop. Um, but I do want to say it's contentious in some circles. Um, excuse me, some say that it has too little research behind it, so not enough research base. Um, but what she's saying here is that neither side of this war or any opinion um, should get to own the science of reading. And I think that she makes a good point for why and when, to be very honest, that the systematic and explicit phonics instruction is important. So she's not saying um, that one side is better than the other and um, or that that systematic and explicit phonics instruction works to build better readers. She says it definitely does, um, but that it may not be enough. Um, I think she's asking us to broaden our horizons and say there's not only one thing that's going to make a, a better reader. Um, and so I just wanted to say too that a colleague of ours at Notre Dame's uh, Center for Literacy and Education, Dr. Jardine Morell, she shared this piece with me. And um, we had a really good conversation about it because it helped us articulate better our vision for teaching literacy to our teachers or are exposing our teachers, I guess, to the various possibilities um, when teaching reading. I think also what it reminded me is that um, there is a way to strike a balance between strategy instruction, so that's um, word calling or comprehension, and strong and engaging and authentic reading experiences. And that too often this entire stance um, is, or often this entire stance is called balanced literacy. And that's what we promote, both Jodine and I, in our courses, um, and often when we um, are asked to help teachers in various schools, um, Catholic schools around the country, really, and around the world. Um, and I think one other thing is that we teach teachers how to support phonics learning, um, and we, we share lots of high-quality literature with our students. And we teach lesson structures for scaffolding strategy use, for example, um, like model coach fade. We do that um, at ACE at Notre Dame. Um, but we also teach lesson structures for experiences with literature. So how to do a novel study, how to do a book club, how to do a literature circle. So in lots of Catholic school classrooms that I'm in, um, students are learning phonics rules um, and vowel rules and sight words, but they're also learning strategies for comprehension. Um, they're questioning, they're inferencing, and they're making sense of novels or articles or short stories. So um, it's that idea of balance, I think, that is really important. So let me, let me follow up on that, Erin. So if I were in your literacy methods class and learned that you or, or Dr. Jodine Morrell um, talk about this balanced literacy, literacy approach, but then let's say I get to my school and I'm teaching maybe early elementary school and my school teaches only with phonics. What do I do? How, how do I use that curriculum, but also make sure that I'm using the approach that I was taught in your class? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that's the reality of so many of our schools out there. And so that's where we have to be resourceful. So Jodine and I and other, um, other of our supervisors share some free resources out there. I know that both doctors, Katie and Mike Macaluso, share these too. There are free websites, things like ReadWorks, News ELA, um, CommonLit.org also, um, where you can get leveled text 
in a variety of genre that expose students to literature that will bring about the kinds of comprehension that you want students to have? Or do you want to expose students to? And what we always say too is it's not the curriculum that should necessarily drive your instruction. And that's hard for novice teachers because oftentimes it is. But for those of us that have been teaching for a while, we're better able to supplement with things like these free resources that can absolutely boost comprehension. But what I will say, Monica, is that oftentimes it's the other way around where our schools actually do have like a basal curriculum or something like that, but we don't have a, a really quality explicit phonics instruction and the resources there are much fewer right. um and so we do have to re revert to teaching phonics rules and sight words um in particular does that answer your question oh that's really that's really helpful thank you well i have another question for you okay. um, let's shift away from early elementary right now um so one question i have is I know that we have some solid research and information on how to teach phonics and early literacy skills to young learners, but I also know that there are older students, maybe in middle school and high school, who are still struggling with phonics and decoding skills. So I guess I'm wondering if you have any good resources or tips for teachers of older students to help to teach those foundational schools skills, maybe in an age-appropriate way, so that they're not doing sight words necessarily, but what can they do that can support them? So that's kind of hard. Um, well, that's not a, that's a hard situation, and I get that question a lot. And I think that the answer has two parts. So yes, we definitely have research that shows that teaching phonics explicitly, that means teaching word sounds and the combination of letters to create sounds, um, and systematically, so often and on a regular basis, will help students decode more successfully. And remember that even you and I, Monica, decode when we come across words that we're not familiar. So when we're in, I'm in chemistry classrooms and I come across words sometimes that I don't know or understand and I am having to decode. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't figure out the meaning. So my pushback for older readers is oftentimes, do they need to be able to decode in order to understand? Um, so just because students are less fluent, that means they're slower readers, does not mean that they are worse readers. But what I will also say is there is no better way for older students. It is best to still review with older students, your fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, um, vowel rules and what they know and don't know about long A's or digraphs like SH says shh. Sometimes students have just missed that instruction, so there really is no better way. So a one-on-one -on -one quick check-in with students will most often help. Um, but what I want to be really clear about here is that kind of instruction may not help with those bigger, more complex words because they break the rules. So remember that bigger kids, older kids, come in contact with more difficult words that may not ever be able to be easily or quickly decoded because they're new to them. And that's okay, as long as we support the reading of those words with vocabulary instruction and understanding that meaning also is what's driving this whole scenario. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Meaning and the comprehension is really important, especially with the older students. 
Right. The vocabulary is huge. And so that doesn't mean you shouldn't be a word detective. So you should still look at words, especially we use morphemic analysis. So that's like looking at the parts of the word and saying, okay, is there a piece here that I know or understand? Does it, does it contribute to the meaning of a word? Um, and I do think that sight words are really important all the way through grade five. Very honestly, that will give you a lot of information teachers, whether or not your kiddos know those, those first sight words. So I have a question for you. Okay. Now, especially from the educational psychology lens. Um, so can you see an argument for either side of this debate? So the phonics side or the whole language side, or maybe even um, in between somewhere um, from an engagement or motivational standpoint, more of a education psychology stance. So I feel like I have the real world experience, um, but I also have a I'd also have a preference for how I like how I like to teach. So I was just wondering um, what the research or what you know to be true there. Oh yeah, sure. So I, I do think that motivation research has or can be used to support any of these approaches to literacy instruction in different ways. So on the one hand, you talk about whole language approach, and that's you know reading engaging texts and learning reading through the reading of of high interest materials that students like, and certainly there is a, um, there's a motivational argument there that high quality literature supports motivation and that students read better when they're reading something that they're interested in or that they appreciate. Um, and we do see that play out that, you know, students who are at a certain reading level, you give them something that's a higher level, but it's interesting to them and they can make their way through it uh, just fine because of that motivation. So I think that could be an argument to support that lens. On the other hand, though, uh, and especially thinking with these these older students as we were just talking about, I think that we also know that feeling competent is also super important for motivation. So from a self-determination perspective, it's one of the three basic needs that we have this need for competence. And a student who struggles with decoding and phonics is likely to really feel like they're not competent enough and maybe even suffer from some learned helplessness in feeling that they Mm-hmm. They will. So they'll disengage from that, from that perspective. So on that side, I would say that you could see that mastering phonics and feeling confident in decoding could be more motivational than reading something that's too challenging, even if it is of high interest. So I, I think you could make an argument either way for those two different um, approaches to literacy instruction from an educational psychology standpoint. Um, so I think I tend to lean more towards the balance approach as well that you were talking about, because I think that it's probably best for supporting motivation as students learn to read uh, and as struggling readers try to, you know, build up their reading that I, I think really talking to those older kids about, you know, if you are capable of being a good reader and it doesn't mean that you're dumb because you have to go back and practice phonics skills. It means you weren't taught something or you missed something along the way. And if we can catch you up, then you can read just as well as your other peers. And you can read all these exciting, interesting things. You can do an approach like that. And also what you just said really, um, it made me think of something. So I also think it's okay for teachers to remind students that just because they are slower readers or they can't decode, doesn't well or quickly doesn't mean they can't comprehend. Right. So fluency or the ability to decode quickly and accurately and with prosody aloud, reading out loud, right? Fluent reading has a really messy relationship with comprehension. And I think it's okay for us as teachers to say, it's okay that you aren't good at reading out loud. If you are if you're still able to get through the text um, or you can listen to it, like re listening comprehension, you're still able 
to make sense of text. Now, is that the answer for everything? No, but I think that might help students to like want to engage more if they know they can listen or just because they're a slower reader doesn't mean they're a worse reader because the research shows that as well. Right, right. That's right. I think that's important and that, you know, they, they can, they, there's different ways to be a good reader. Right. Absolutely. And I think this comes into play too. I just wanted to mention our language learners out there because so many of us work with teacher or work with students as teachers with students um, who may have more than one language at home, may be fluent in more than one language, but may only be readers in one language, sometimes two. Um, so they're a really interesting group because sometimes, like you said, they need that direct instruction in phonics because the rules are different, y'all. Like in Spanish, vowels do different things than vowels do in English. So um, be explicit. Maybe they just, like you said before, didn't really know. Um, and the other really big piece here is vocabulary. So I don't want our um, teachers to focus so much on phonics that they don't expose our students to really high quality text and reading aloud from you as teacher of fluent reading because that's how kiddos are going to get exposure and more word learning knowledge. So more vocabulary, more exposure to words is going to help those kiddos. So um, I think that's a really important piece too. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. No problem. Okay, let's do some key takeaways. What's your key takeaway as a teacher? Okay, um, so as a teacher, this piece helped remind me that every teacher is also a reading teacher. I know we've said that before, but I think even, you know, those of you who teach high school physics or middle school math or science, I think you still need to know something about how to teach reading. So understanding how contentious and complex early literacy education is I think can be helpful for all teachers to consider how reading and how a lack of reading skills could impact students in any classroom. Right. I, I agree there. I think my t key takeaway as a teacher is to remember, um, and this was in the article itself, that language is both receptive and productive. So when we learn to read, um, we both take words in, we decode, but just as important is learning to write knowing what we want to say and being able to translate what we hear in our brains or out loud into paper. So the actual, the process of um, spelling or writing. So Lucy Calkins, I think, noticed or noted this in the piece when she said this, and this is a quote. She said, teaching kids to flexibly attack words, looking for chunks is important, and writing words is what can help students solidify these skills. So students do have to learn to decode. They have to learn to call words, but they also have to be able to match sounds with letters when they learn to write. So as teachers, don't neglect that productive side. Don't neglect that writing or allowing kids to take their own ideas and what they know about phonics and to write it down because that's it's, it's all circular and it's all going to um, feed and help one another those skills. Great point. And maybe uh, one of our next articles should be something writing focused so we can discuss that further. Oh, yeah. I know a lot of our teachers ask a lot about this, especially in the content areas. A lot of them are doing research writing and writing work. So absolutely. It's, mm -hmm. it's really important. Um, so how about as a researcher, Erin, what, uh, what did this bring up for you? Yeah, so this is really interesting because I always come at these things um, as a teacher researcher and mostly as a practitioner because I go in and help teachers in classrooms all the time and supporting teachers every, everywhere I go. And I get asked all of the time how to help students. So often a teacher will call me or email me and have a specific case that he or she wants to discuss. Um, and because of this, uh, I really wish we had better and more accessible tools to assess students. Students. because oftentimes my answer to that teacher is I don't 
no, because I don't have the data or they don't have the data on what a student's know or what a student knows or really in reading can do. What can that student do with words? So those assessments really, um, if they were more accessible um, and I think easier to use more frequently, I think would be really helpful. So as a researcher, I'm thinking about how, how are we using those tools? Have they really helped us? intervene, create interventions when students need them. And I want to say we do have tools out there. So we have the running record, which we, um, which we teach teachers. Um, and we have things like star testing, right? Many of our students are tested um, really several times a year, usually fall, winter, and spring. Um, but I wish we had um, more accessible tools that gave us the full picture of reading, what students decode, what they're understanding at a complex level. And I'm wondering if there's not a way for us to design something that's even better. Um, that's a hard question, but that's my wish list. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, that's really interesting because that, that goes along with my key takeaway too as a researcher. So I, I, first of all, I, I affirm that. I think that there is a need for, for more and better assessments that are more accurate or complete for students. So I'm currently wrapping up some research with some colleagues um, that involved a tool called the EGRA, which I know you're familiar with too, the early grade. Early grades reading assessment. Yep. yep. Uh, early grade reading assessment is what it stands for. And it's used internationally um, in lots of different contexts. But what we're finding in our study is that some of the results are a little skewed by the fact that there are limitations to that assessment tool as well, uh, particularly around comprehension skills. Uh, it's much better with fluency and decoding, but not so much with comprehension. So, um, so yeah, for, for me, I, I totally agree that the, the assessments that we have are limited. I also think that part of the problem and what my takeaway as a researcher has to do with is that a lot of foundational literacy teaching happens when students are very young and it can be difficult to do research or even get valid assessments with students who are that young because of the cognitive demand of questions and because of potential response bias that we know is a problem with little ones um, and, and a whole bunch of other issues that are involved with doing research with young children. So um, I know that there are lots of great smart people out there who are doing wonderful things and developing methods like, you know, from using response scales that have smiley faces instead of words or um, using puppets uh, and other fun kind of research tools. But I haven't had a lot of success in this area. I haven't, I haven't explored a lot. And it's something that I'm more interested in is just how do we do research um, with young children, particularly in something as complex as reading? How do we, how do we make good decisions based on research in those areas? And how, how are, not only what could those assessments look like, but like you're saying right now, how could we be sure that they're valid and reliable too? Because you're exactly right. That's really important. And oftentimes it ends up in elementary, the early grades being one-on-one. -on -one. So I right. have to talk to each students one at, a, one at a time. And that, the demand for time sometimes just doesn't account exactly. or allow us. Exactly. And I do think teachers do a good job with things like running records and other um, things where they do one-on-one -on -one interviews with children to try to get a complete picture. It's just that time doesn't let that happen very often and, and very completely and some students aren't as great in those situations I just want to say that I think there's a push now you mentioned star assessments and other computerized adaptive um, tests and I struggle with understanding the validity of those with young children and I know the test companies will say that they're valid and they have information on it but I know from my own children watching them you know take those and their scores going up and down and up and down they're like their, their attention goes elsewhere and they're just like yeah. something pops into their brain and they disengage and sure, sure. 
So it just brings up questions. When I get those results back from my own children, I always take them with a grain of salt saying, well, I know this was a computer adaptive test. And if my kid, right. And if my kid was spacing out, then, you know, I'm not going to take those results and, and treat them too seriously. And I mean, also too, as a researcher or a teacher coach, I mean, I think it's important too, that we get better, um, or that we have more research information on how teachers are effectively using that data in the classroom. So it is true too. I don't want to say that our teachers are not getting data because like, you know, we are getting some of this data, but, um, flawed though it may be, um, our teachers using that data well, or do we know what to do once we get those reports back? I think that's an interesting question and how confident and resourceful are our teachers in receiving and then being active with that data, right? All good yeah. questions. Yeah. That's a, big, that's a big question. All good questions. Okay. Last but not least, what about a key takeaway as someone who works within the Catholic school community? Do you have a takeaway here? A little bit. Yeah. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about how Catholic schools across the United States are so diverse and some are very rich in resources um, while many others are not. And I think about those Catholic schools that a lot of our teachers serve in that are less well-resourced. Um, I think about the issue we talked about before about having access to high quality curriculum and how challenging that can be, especially when the idea of high quality resources and the science of reading topics keeps changing. Uh, And when we're told, you know, one year that this is really important and then this is really important and our teachers are left with curriculum that may be dated and may not have everything that they're, that they're looking for. Um, And I just think about how challenging that is. So I think it's important to try to prioritize literacy instruction and resources in our country's Catholic schools, uh, but also to keep that flexibility as we talked about and know that there's not one right answer. You don't have to have the newest and best and shiniest resources in order to teach reading effectively, and you can supplement with other resources. So I think that's really helpful to keep in mind, particularly in um, under-resourced Catholic schools. 100%. I mean, I think that's really well said, and the point's so well taken, and I see the same thing um, in so many of my lesser-resourced schools. I think for me, too, I think this kind of feeds off of what you're saying, is um, that one of my favorite things about Catholic schools, and this might be just an obvious thing, but I think we should name it more often, is that our schools are parochial, and I think that is what makes us special. So each school that I'm in, um, when I get to do my visits around the country, um, each school is a unique population and it serves a unique population. And I think that the amazing thing about this is that our teachers can begin to specialize in that population, Um, just like a parish does, right? This with the Spanish mass or the Polish mass, um, the schools can, the parish schools can specialize too. And I think that reading teachers, and like you say, every teacher is a reading teacher, um, can benefit from understanding their context. So let's not forget that, that your students and what your students and families require in order to support more and better literacy development is what should be at the heart of your instructional decisions. Wonderful. That's what I think about that. (laughs) Great. Well, this has been fun, Erin. Thanks for this great conversation. We will put a link to this article in the show notes, and we welcome any comments or questions or ratings um, about this episode. Yes. Thanks, everyone.